Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me, and of course, you've got the fabulous Christopher. Christopher, who have we got on today? Seeing as both of us were out of our depths just the other day when we talked to Nick Morton about medieval history, I thought just for a change, I'd throw us out of our depth again. We have Stuart Ellis Gorman, who is a regular award winning contributor to Reddit's Ask Historians and reviews history books for publication. He's had a long interest in longbows and crossbows, and he's here to talk about his book, The Medieval Crossbow, A Weapon Fit to Kill a King. So, Stuart, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me. Always happy to talk about crossbows. Everyone in my family is sick of hearing me talk about crossbows. So (laughs) any opportunity to talk to anyone else, any poor, unsuspecting sap who's prepared to listen to crossbows talk is okay with me. I'm, again, out of my depth uh, with, one, medieval history, two, military history, so um, let's learn something new, or at least teach me something new. I will do my best. So if we get down to the nuts and bolts of it, how does the crossbow, the longbow is fairly straightforward, put the arrow in, pull it back, let it go. It's probably a bit more te- technical than that. But uh... no, Do you know what? I think you might have to really layman terms it down, because what is the dis- difference between a crossbow and a lot? Right now, that's my question. What is the difference between the two of them? I have no idea. So the main, so the difference between a crossbow and, and a longbow, or just any old bow, is the crossbow is attached to a stock. So kind of like you imagine a, a modern gun stock. And in many ways, the, the stocks that guns use are developments from crossbows. Uh, then there's within crossbows, there is a, a debate, I would say, between what it, what a crossbow is and what we would call an arrow guide. So the distinction in that would be the existence of a trigger. So an arrow guide could be a bow that's just stuck on the side of a piece of wood and that you use that to kind of help you draw the bow versus a crossbow would have an actual trigger. So you would, it would lock the string in place and then you put the bolt and then you can wait for your shot. So when you pull back a longbow, you have to hold it at full tension, waiting for your shot. So you tend not to do that, particularly as bows get heavier. You think about like English longbows at Agincourt, you're not holding them steady for long periods of time that that would wreck your body. Crossbows are the art don't have that problem. The, the weapon does that for you. Uh, so there's some debate about whether or not you should, a crossbow is just a bow mounted onto some form of stock, or if it has to have that trigger to make it work. Uh, within crossbows, there are substantial variations in, in design. Uh, you have probably one of the most fundamental is the kind of classic Chinese design of a crossbow, which uh, the bow mounted on a traditional Chinese crossbow, we're talking kind of Han era, 4th century BC, uh, up through kind of 
they stay fairly consistent for much of the BC era. I'd be a little bit more of my depth uh, into AD because Chinese history is not my specialty. But the early Chinese crossbow, crossbows, the bow is just the same as a normal hand bow you would shoot. So they just taken a hand bow that they would often use. Usually they'd be composite bows for ancient China. And they've stuck it on a stock and they put a trigger on it. And one of the things, this feature is that bows like that need to be drawn a very long distance to shoot. So the stock, the trigger is at the way end of the, the crossbow stock. So basically the bit that it sits against your shoulder if you're shooting it, that's where that you pull it back to. And the flip, and the flip side of that in the European crossbows that we know mostly kind of high medieval, late medieval, they've, like they're custom built bows. So in the case of the wooden crossbow, you would have, like it's often made of you, which is the same material a longbow is made of, but it's like if you made a really short, really strong you bow and the the crossbow trigger tends to be about halfway down the stock. So you have a very fundamental different design. Like you can't pull, you can't draw a U crossbow with your hands. It's just not possible. Because for example, a uh, longbow might be 150 pounds over 28 or 30 inches, like a really powerful longbow. So that's kind of the upper end of longbows. So you have to think you have to pull back 150 pounds of force. You're doing it over 30 inches. So you, it, it doesn't, it's not actually a flat progression. It actually gets harder the more further back you pull, but it is over time versus a kind of a U composite or U crossbow could be 150 in like 10 inches. So now you're doing all of that work in a much shorter space. So it's, it's not very practical. So that's why you tend to have devices to help you draw them and you have this trigger to hold it steady. In addition to that, we have composite crossbows, which are a composite bow is a bow that's made of multiple materials. Generally, when we talk about them, we're talking about a bow that's made of wood, a type of horn, animal horn, and sinew. And you have a core made of wood, and you put um, horn along the back, which is the bit that faces, okay, along the belly, sorry, the belly is the bit that faces the archer, and then sinew on the other side. And basically, the horn is harder to compress, and so it's it, you get more draw weight out of less material. And the sinew gives it an elasticity and also helps it hold together. Composite crossbows use the same materials they use them in quite different ways uh, there's a lot of different structures and, and we don't fully know exactly how that all works partly because they've only really started replicating it recently uh, the crossbow is a little understudied and you can't like experiment with surviving ones they've all dried out and no museum is going to let you break their crossbows like that and then there's also finally steel crossbows a very late medieval invention which is the bow is made of steel and that has its own properties it works kind of like a large steel spring those are your, kind of your main types of crossbows. There's lots of little nuances. There's weird crossbow variations. There's bullet crossbows, which are designed to shoot bullets instead of bolts. There's gun crossbows, which are crossbows that have guns built into them, which is a fun 16th century fad that doesn't really stick around because it's not very practical, but it's very cool. Uh, and you have things like trap crossbows, which are crossbows you would set up. And usually for hunting, you would, you would hunt often animals for their pelts. So if they stepped into a hole, it would shoot them with the crossbow. So there's a bunch of different kinds of crossbow as well. From memory, it's been a long time since I did sort of Middle Ages stuff, the crossbow had a much slower rate of fire than the longbow though, didn't it? Yeah, so generally there's, there's again always room for debate here, but I mean as a rule, it's much slower. Uh, how much slower depends on what devices you're using with it. Mm. So crossbows, like by default a certain pound crossbow you could just pull it back with your uh, hands and just pull it back with your arms. Often one of the first developments we see in crossbows is a, a stirrup that you stick on the front of the crossbow to put your yeah. foot in. Because before that, you're standing on your bow, which isn't great for the bow. And it's also actually just quite awkward to do. People have tried doing it. 
because the bow is not flat. So you're standing on this horrible round thing as you're trying to like balance and pull it up. It's awful. So the stirrup is an early development. And then a very soon after that development is called a belt hook, which is a hook on your belt. So then you, you hook the string onto the, the belt hook and then you put your foot in the stirrup. And this lets you use your legs to pull the string back rather than your arms. And you're like significantly more powerful than your arms. So we see variants on that, but then we also see uh, with the windlass and the Kranikin, which are two kind of big cranking devices. The Kranikin is like a big metal uh, gear shaft, gear mechanism. And the windlass is more like a winch. Just think of it like it's like a fairly fancy winch. And so these let you draw these really intensely powerful uh, crossbows, but they're very slow. I mean, you'd be lucky to be doing two shots a minute with them a lot of the time, particularly you see like experienced uh, archers using them two maybe three if they're very good and you know longbows can shoot much faster than that but the kind of flip side of that is probably those aren't the most if you're in a battle situation probably most of your crossbowmen aren't using that they're probably using more of a belt hook setup that draws faster and the other factor is that while a longbow can shoot it's kind of six arrows a minute thing you only have so many arrows and that's exhausting so probably most battles archers aren't shooting off at max rate and crossbows are probably a little bit faster so there is a difference and there's a potential like if you need a lot of arrows to go somewhere very quickly archers can provide that with bows in a way they can't with crossbows but i think there's an often exaggeration in popular imagination about just how disparate they were that actually makes sense so i kind of have a great idea so talk to us about how the crossbow is depicted in art and uh, what can it tell us about the weapon yeah, so one of the challenges we have studying the crossbow, particularly in the kind of high Middle Ages, is we have a very limited archaeological record. This is also a problem we have with the longbow and a lot of weaponry in the Middle Ages, is that none of this stuff doesn't survive in very high rates. So when you get to kind of the 15th, 16th, 17th century, there's lots of crossbows. But if you're looking earlier, kind of 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, then you don't get that kind of same coverage. And that means you have to find evidence somewhere else. And medieval art is great for that. It's a challenging source to work with because medieval art is not particularly com- concerned with realism, I would say. It has a very flexible relationship with that. But at the same time, it can tell you a lot about how society understood the crossbow, what their relationship was. And it's also great for things like if I was talking about belt hooks and these spanning devices. There's a lot of depictions of you know, medieval soldiers and fighters using these devices. So they can provide a lot of insight into how they were used when they first emerged. Because often we don't have archaeological evidence for when is the belt hook first appear, but we can look at illuminated manuscripts and we can see that there are belt hooks in, you know, this century, 11th century images. And that kind of gives you an, at least they're from here. They might be older than that, but at least they're from here. So it's a really useful tool for kind of filling in when you don't have the archaeology. It's also on a man-sized rabbit who's hunting people. So... You have to kind of, I think that's part of the joy of it is that I, the art is so weird. The record or find, getting a different perspective that the archaeological record won't provide for you. At the same time, it's something you have to be careful about using because, as I say, it's, it's all a bit odd. And like, so you have scenes of like, well, this is a really interesting depiction of, you know, belt hooks in art. And you get to see some truly bizarre stuff that's great. Uh, and then you, but you do have to then kind of also be aware that it's not like, you know, hyper realistic or it's not like working with photography now so for modern sources so it's it's this fun aspect of the job though if, if you can find it as a bit of a sidestep if you can find it on twitter it's a medieval manuscript art feed and they post some of the pictures and there's like uh rabbits riding snails chasing humans 
It's, it's brilliant. Some some of the medieval rabbits hunting people, and it's brilliant. Like it's across many manuscripts. There's a, it's it's clearly some kind of medieval joke that they loved. And yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> it's like this bored, bored monk doing the illumination. But um, you mentioned China before, because I'd always thought that crossbows were a European invention. But what what were the origins, and when did they first start to appear? So the crossbow is an ancient Chinese weapon originally. Uh, it probably is. 5th, 6th century BC. We don't know exactly when it first appears, uh, but there's lots of evidence from the end of the Warring States period. For example, the famous Terracotta Army of the Qin Emperor that has lots of crossbowmen in it. So we have definitely, by the end of the Warring States, Qin Dynasty, there's plenty of crossbows. Um, Sun Tzu, who's difficult to date, but in the art of war, he makes a metaphor using a crossbow about armies being like ready to to pounce like a like a Pull, like a pulled back crossbow basically like they're ready to shoot so he's got kind of this like crossbows are fairly normal reference point then even in he's kind of spring and autumn period maybe or warring states he's difficult to date so certainly 6th century bc china definitely crossbows it could even be 7th 8th century uh you know and i think we might even find more archaeological evidence as more digs are being done in china that will push it back even earlier uh in europe it's trickier so our first really good evidence, the first textual evidence of crossbows in Europe is in Vegetius, who's a late Roman military thinker. He writes kind of about fourth century. Uh, he's really influenced throughout the Middle Ages. He's, his Manual of Wars remains very popular. So he has a couple of references to crossbows. They're not very detailed, and they're often, like he talks about um, manualista, arquebalista, these kind of small ballista. Uh, and this is a fun part of doing crossbow research, is that the word for crossbow in Latin is ballista. But you also might be aware of this very large torsion-powered siege weapon called a ballista. Mm-hmm. And it's just the same word, basically. So it's a lot of context figuring out when are they mean ballista. And when you get to the kind of later Middle Ages, ballista generally means crossbow. But it, there's a lot of periods where it could be either, and it's very difficult. So this is where this, this archivalista, manualista, kind of bow ballista or like smaller ballista is generally interpreted as meaning crossbow. Uh, but we don't have any archaeological evidence, really, for most of the early Middle Ages. We have a couple of depictions of uh, Romano-Gallic art, so kind of probably 5th, 6th century. And then we have a, a Pictish standing stone that has a, probably a crossbow man on it. Again, this is where we're getting into some tricky art interpretations because it's it's very abstracted. Uh, so it could just be a very weird depiction of a bow but generally has been interpreted as crossbow, I think it's about 8th century. And we have a few archaeological finds in Scotland, so it's probably present in the early Middle Ages. We know very little about its style, and there's been some debate about is it imported from China at some point, uh, probably around the time of Vegetius, there's some contact between Rome and China, or is it descended from this ancient Greek weapon called the Gastrophetes, which is this belly bow, which is this big kind of bow weapon that looks a bit like a crossbow and was spanned, by there's, it has this kind of rod that you would push into the ground and then you would put this the other end of the bow against your stomach and you would lean down and that would push the string back into place. But that's this extremely obscure Greek weapon. The references to it tend to be kind of Roman era. So it's like probably more likely that it comes from China where we have tons and tons and tons and tons of crossbows. But because we don't have any, we don't have very little for what the gastrophetes looks like. We don't really know much about what these early Roman crossbows. We kind of have a the the Romano-Gallic stones are our best source, but there's two of them. Only one of them is very reliably dated. One of them was dug up in a site, so we kind of know when it's from. The other one was just found in a basement in the 18th century. 
<laughs> like one of these kind of finds you're like oh this is definitely like 1500 years old but i don't know from when uh so those give us a bit more insight but we don't really because we, we can't one of the things we don't have is we don't have chinese crossbows have this very distinctive trigger that's made of bronze that's mm-hmm. very different from the trigger that's used in the high middle ages crossbows and we don't have bronze chinese style triggers being dug up in early medieval sites in europe so it creates this kind of like it's it's almost there and it's probably it's originally from china it comes to europe in like the third fourth century and then it kind of doesn't really catch on in europe until the 11th century for whatever reason but we we don't really have quite all the pieces there to link it all up so there's still some kind of unknowns okay so we've got king henry the first of england and his great-grandson richard the first who had two very different experiences of the crossbow can you tell us about both of them yeah, so this is kind of where the book got its subtitle from. So the book is The Medieval Crossbow Weapon Fit to Kill a King. Uh, and not actually very many monarchs died of the crossbow, but more than you might think. And it first came from Richard I, but I'll, I'll do Richard I second. King Henry I is an interesting guy. He's the son of William the Conqueror. He takes over after his brother, William II, is killed in a hunting accident, probably by a longbow. But it's always it's always the chance it's a crossbow. Not all the sources say, but it's probably he got shot by a bow in a hunting accident. And there's a bit of a, you know, stink about it because his brother inherits him. And you kind of have this certain, like, was he assassinated? Was it an accident? I mean, dying in hunting accidents was a thing. So anyway, Rich, Henry I's other kind of interesting, I guess we could say quirk or uh, deplorable uh, character quality is he had 13 illegitimate children, which I think might be a royal record, certainly for the English monarchy. Uh, it's up there for for European monarchs, but one of the story comes from uh, one of his uh, daughters, Juliana de Fontevraud, or Julianne de Fontevraud, who was married to uh, another illegitimate, an illegitimate son of a French nobleman in Bretoul. And basically, throughout uh, Henry the First's reign, there was a lot of unrest, so he's having to deal with this revolt. And at the same time, his Julianne and her husband Eustace want the castle of Ivry, which is a castle in northern France, and are kind of making noises about rebelling if they don't get it. And so they reach an agreement with um, Ralph Harneck, who's the constable of Ivry, who that they will do like basically a hostage swap. So Julianne and Eustace's two daughters go to Ralph, and Ralph's son goes to them. And then they'll get kind of control over the castle with this agreement being that they have, this is fairly standard medieval politics that you would swap people to make sure someone meets an agreement. And then for reasons not totally clear, uh, Eustace decides to blind Ralph's son, which is a pretty big no-no. You're not supposed to do that. And so Ralph, understandably extremely annoyed, wants to respond, which you would do in a hostage situation is inflict the harm on your hostages. His problem is that his hostages are the granddaughters of Henry I, the king, who he is allied to. Now, they are the illegitimate, like, but they're still his granddaughters, right? So he, so he checks mm-hmm. with Henry. Henry gives him permission, so he blinds the daughters and cuts off the ends of their noses, and then they swap them back, basically. So he sends them back, like, through it. So horrible things to poor children who don't deserve this. <laughs> and Julianne... And Eustace then rebel, basically. So they go to Julianne to the town of Bretoul and takes up, hold, uh, holds a position in the citadel. Henry I comes to the city with an army 
and she's gotten there before him, but the citizens just open the gates, which is a thing that happens sometimes. They're like, we actually don't want to be involved in this civil war with the king. So we're going to open the gates. So the garrison and Julianne flee into the attached castle, the citadel. And Julianne basically decides to, have, to ask Henry for a talk. And then the descriptions about how they meet are not clear, but like what the circumstances, is she on the walls talking to him or did she come out? But what is clear is that she brings a crossbow and she takes a shot at him. And she misses, but she has tried to kill her father. And then, uh, like immediately afterwards, she flees the castle by getting lowered down outside the moat. Outside, falls in the moat, climbs out, gets on a horse, and escapes. Uh, and eventually, they're all reconciled. And she eventually takes up uh, life in an abbey when her husband dies. But they, like, it's this bizarre kind of sequence of events, and you don't really get a lot of like children of kings trying to kill them with crossbows. Uh, so it's it really struck me as like this kind of fascinatingly odd story. And then Richard the first is noteworthy because he actually is killed by a crossbow. So he has two bad crossbows. Well, he probably has more than two, but two famous bad crossbow experiences. One of them was on the third crusade. Well, after the fall of the city of uh, Acre, which is the big siege of the third crusade, they mar he marches in his army south towards Jaffa, which is the nearest port to Jerusalem. And there's a large battle. There's several large skirmishes and battles there. And at one point along, that journey he takes he gets shot in the side with a crossbow but it doesn't really go very deep he's he ends up i mean he keeps campaigning he fights it seems fine you know like it goes through his armor but it doesn't go through with enough force to seriously injure him the kind of more famous story comes that he's besieging this small city uh in the north of france in i think it's in aquitaine actually in kind of central france because uh, by this point he's the daughter of eleanor of aquitaine so he owns like most of france and his lands and there's all these like really salacious stories about why he's there involving like secret golden idols and stuff. But he's besieging the city. He goes out to kind of, he's preparing to storm this, the castle. Like they've been there for a bit. It's not a very big castle. He's got a big army. And he goes out to have a look at the walls. And there's debate about whether he forgot, he decided not to wear his armor or what. Like usually there's a guy who brings a big shield to kind of like walk near you if you're doing this. And then maybe the failure is that guy. But anyway, someone peeks out over the wall, sees him, takes a shot. And the crossbow bolt gets buried in his shoulder. The bolt doesn't kill him. He survives that, but then the wound gets gangrenous, and that kills him because there's, you know, it's not a lot of not a lot medieval medicine can do if you get a bad infection. They are actually pretty good at stitching up wounds, but gangrene is game over. So he they end up taking the the, the city though while he's dying, but he does die out there. And there's lots of kind of stories. There's a story by one chronicler about how he the person who shot him is brought before him and he pardons him before he dies but then they have him flayed alive after the king is dead which yeah. also is probably just a story made up after the fact because the sources disagree even about who it was who shot him or if he knew that it was the king when he shot but he's he's a very famous monarch for many reasons and for crossbow history it's because he actually got shot and killed by a crossbow because usually with these kind of monarch deaths you killed it or royal deaths if you're assassinated it's with a knife or if you're killed in battle it's because somebody else cuts you down it's very rare they actually get killed at range by a missile weapon fired by a peasant yeah yeah they much prefer a more noble end um another knight or a lord rather dying than... of gangrene in the middle of nowhere is really no yeah. <laughs> idea he's also really. buried in like three places because of it because at the time they would uh bury your insides near your death because they they cut it all out so you don't rot mm. And then his heart is somewhere else, and his body is uh, in the famous abbey with Eleanor of Aquitaine. And yeah. 
his father. The crossbow's not only used in Europe, though, is it? The Crusaders take them with them off to the Holy Land. How, how does it fare as a weapon against the Saracens? So it's a fairly instrumental weapon in, in the Crusades, and it features in a lot of crusading tactics. I mean, it's fairly prominent across Europe, but the Crusades has a very distinct dynamic, which is that there's large numbers of mounted horse archers that they're fighting, which is not something that's normal in Western European warfare for the most part. Um, you know, you get a bit of it in parts of Iberia, but the it's the kind of dominant style of warfare that they're fighting against many crusades, particularly against the Turks in uh, the north, and then and then also just kind of across Arab tribes and Bedouins and all that. So one of the kind of main tactical dynamics is the crusaders are trying to march their army somewhere to fight a battle, and they're being harassed basically all the time. Because if you can wear down your opponent before the battle happens, that's always advantageous. So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Saladin has set up a siege somewhere and the Crusaders have to get an army to relieve the siege. He's going to harass you the whole way there. Or like with uh, Richard I, Richard I leads this very famous kind of, it's called a fighting march, where he has to get from uh, Acre to Jaffa. And he's just going to be basically, he's got his army marching along the coast and on off the coast, he has ships with supplies that will come in and resupply him periodically. But he's got to basically get through extended enemy territory where he's going to be attacked at a low level all the time and the thing the crossbow is great for in this is you can hold them back because you can just keep your loaded crossbow together because they ride they're going to ride really close to you shoot as close as they can for maximum effect and then ride away before you can chase after them that's kind of the classic way of doing this harassing and the crossbow lets you wait till they come really close and then shoot at them so that creates this kind of dynamic where they this like how close is safe and can you it gives you a counter attack to them so you see lots of crossbow being very essential to these kind of tactics and then once you get into battle it comes in again so a later so uh richard the first does actually take jaffa and then eventually takes ascalon but then he goes back to acker and saladin comes out from jerusalem to besiege jaffa and richard eventually leaves this kind of uh, in 1192 he leaves this big kind of amphibious landing on the beaches of Jaffa to drive them off. And then three fights the Battle of Jaffa. And the Battle of Jaffa, we have descriptions of how he has, the, basically his whole army is Italian in this because it's all the merchant, it's all the, the warriors from the ships. Mm-hmm. He has a very small number of cavalry and he has lots of crossbowmen and spearmen. And he basically lines the spearmen up and between each spearman, he puts two crossbowmen, one whose job is to shoot and one whose job is to reload. And they stay there and they hold position while Saladin kind of does this fake charging and shooting, eventually allowing for Richard to form his cavalry and wait for the right moment. And then they break formation and charge into Saladin's army and they drive him off. And it's one of like the big, it's kind of the final battle they fight of the third crusade. Cause at that point, Richard is a bit broken, has to go home. So there's, it's that kind of dynamic, which is made very iconic in the third crusade, but you actually see it quite a bit across the, the crusades. This being a very essential weapon to the tactics they develop. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So Chris has written the questions here. And I wasn't going to be, I wasn't actually expecting crossbow was banned as a weapon. So why was it banned? So there's this, there's the... The story of the crossbow being banned, and it's a little bit contentious. So we're in the second ladder in council. Our favorite, I'm sure we all, we, I don't have to explain the councils to you, right? I'm sure we're all very familiar with our, our first, second, third ladder. And second ladder, it's a, it's a paper Absolutely. council in 1139. Uh, it was originally called to resolve an, an issue with there being two popes, a classic medieval problem. Uh, one of the popes had the decency to die first. So then it became a, a discussion about something else. And it issues a series of edicts. And one of them, the one that has kind of caught the most attention uh, throughout the years is this edict saying that you shouldn't use bows or crossbows in inter-Christian warfare. So it includes a ban on both ranged weapons. And it also includes, and it's very specific, it's inter-Christian warfare. So if you want to take your crossbow on crusade, absolutely go nuts. Do it. It's great. We're huge fans of crusades. But it's part of this broader movement that was trying to tamp down the amount of internal violence between nobility in Europe which uh, were kind of put forward first under this idea of the peace of God and the truce of God, which were these movements in France uh, and kind of the 10th, 11th century they started. And they were, so the peace of God was to not, was to basically not attack non-combatants. So it was to establish this idea of non-combatants, like don't attack monks, don't attack priests, don't attack women, don't attack children. Ideally, don't attack peasants, uh, you know, limit your war to just the other warriors. And then the truce of God was the idea that you shouldn't fight during holy feast days. So no fighting during Lent, no fighting during Advent, uh, no fighting on holy days, which is most days. <laughs> uh, and actually in the Second Lateran Council has a ban that's basically like you can't fight battles except on like Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Uh, <laughs> and so there's a bunch of bans out. Now, one of the things about it is that like no noble follows these. Like there's, they're not enforceable. And there's bans on, you're not supposed to engage in tournaments. You're not supposed to like hawk. It's, it's all these rules about limiting uh, noble behavior, including this this, wep- this ban on weaponry, and none of them listen. Like this is, you know, well before this is fifty years before uh, Richard the is going to get shot and killed by one. Um, although it does lead, there's a fun anecdote about I say fun anecdote about <laughs> Richard the First, where this there's this writer um, who's writing a bit later after uh, he's writing a, a his second biography of King Philip II of France, who's a rival of Richard the First, and he writes this very ela- elaborate poem about the or the fates you know the famous greek fates are spinning the thread of richard's life and they're going to cut it short and stuff and he accuses richard of introducing the crossbow to france which i've always really enjoyed because it's like patently nonsense like it, they're, they're writing about it in the second ladder council 50 years before this obviously it's not but he sticks it in there anyway because why not if you're gonna just if you're gonna go all in on like pinning crimes on this guy just, well, why just not? do it why not you know uh but yeah so the more effective output of the second ladder council is actually around things like this is when we see the idea of clerical celibacy enter the Catholic Church, not specifically like it's an idea that's in in kind of the ether before this, but Second Lateran is part of this push for celibate clergy to stop things like bishoprics becoming hereditary, and then mm-hmm. you also see a, a push against so it's push against clerical marriage, and then it's a push against uh, simony, which is the buying and selling of offices. So like you know paying someone to make you bishop is something they don't want you to do either, and that is actually like 
the, the much more successful output of these councils versus the, the kind of crossbow ban has caught the imagination, but it's it's very it's much narrower than that. It also applies to bows and nobody listens to it. But you don't get a representative of the Vatican turn up the battle and go, all right, stop that, put that down. None of those. Well, they that? try that, but it never works. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, didn't the Vatican State have, have an army at one point? Didn't they? Yeah, they, they do, and there's, there's popes who lead, who lead armies to battle. It basically never goes well. Nothing about training to become a pope really prepares you to lead troops into combat. <laughs> but there's there's some in the early modern period, and there's some in the medieval as well. There's uh, popes against the Normans when they come to, to southern Italy, and it, they basically always get captured, and it goes really badly. <laughs> But moving on to other banned weapons, we end up getting uh, gunpowder in Europe in 1326. Surely when you start getting basic, oh, what are they called, harbour quasars, were the, most of the original ones? How, how did that affect uh, the crossbow? Because wouldn't you think that that would sort of take over? So it's a slow progress. Uh, so in 1326 is our first like definite guns are here. They're definitely from before. Again, this is, it's an image of medieval art. We have a picture of a gun and a manuscript, a very discernible cannon, which shoots a giant bolt, a big arrow type thing, uh, rather than bullets. Bullets actually come a little bit later. Uh, but So we, have, we definitely have gunpowder from the century before, and then guns from probably the early 1300s. And there's evidence that guns were probably used at uh, the Battle of Crecy in 1346, so they, they catch on pretty quickly. But they're very, very niche for the 14th century particularly. Uh, gunpowder, guns are cheap. Gunpowder is insanely expensive. So mm. gunpowder is made of three ingredients. It's made of charcoal, sulfur, and saltpeter. Uh, charcoal, easy to get. People make charcoal for all sorts of purposes in the Middle Ages. There's lots of charcoal. Sulfur, not too hard to get. Uh, it's You get it from volcanoes. So there's you know Italy, mm-hmm. particularly Sicily. There's lots of sulfur around Mount Etna. And there's mm. also lots of sulfur in Iceland. So it's more expensive, but it's readily available. Saltpeter they initially, for the 14th century, they don't know how to make it. So the Germans figure out how to make it kind of in the late 14th, very early 15th century and actually keep it quite secret for a while. Uh, so it takes a long time to spread. Even England's trying to kind of get saltpeter manufacture going in the Tudor era. So it takes quite a while for them. They're very good at, at locking it down. But so in the 14th century, gunpowder is just too expensive for this to be a common weapon. Uh, we see lots of experimentation with guns. Lots of weird guns get developed and, that, and that various ideas. But it's it's a artillery piece primarily, mm-hmm. mostly going to show up at sieges. Uh, you see a little bit like they try and use it at Crecy in a battle, but the kind of even the people who are writing about it, but like it scares the horses a bit. That's all it really does. Uh, you can't shoot it fast enough or accurately enough to really be a threat. And the 15th century is really when you see gunpowder artillery come into their own as a siege weapon, particularly in the kind of the latter end of the Hundred Years' War, mm-hmm. it becomes more and more important how sieges are conducted. Uh, but you only see the arquebus, which is kind of the default uh, kind of personal firearm, uh, come into play about mid-15th centuries when it becomes more normal with the kind of arrival of matchlocks, which are, uh, they have a burning wick, basically, that you hold, and the trigger lowers that into the pan, and then it shoots from there. Uh, and that still has problems, like it's not very good in, in wet climates, because you have to have mm-hmm. this open flame element to it. It's still quite niche. It's quite difficult to use. There's this idea that gunpowder, you know, you could train someone to use it and they'd be effective in a minute. That's very true of kind of modern muskets where you, once you have cartridges and that kind of, you rip it with your teeth, you ram it in the barrel, then you cock the thing back and you shoot. Early gunpowder guys, they had to mix their own gunpowder for yeah. all, much of the early stage because it, they, it took them all to figure out how to store it because those ingredients will unsift if you just store them 
together in like a big barrel. There's techniques you need to use to stop them on mixing, which they only kind of discover later. So it's a real specialist job early on. So for the most part, crossbows continue to be like the main weapon of, or a main weapon of, of range warfare, along with longbows. And only kind of from the mid to late 15th century do you start seeing archivists kind of coming in. But what you see for a lot of that early period is archivists intermixed with crossbows. So we start seeing development of units that would use both. And you see that certainly up to the 1530s. Uh, crossbows even kind of continue to be used later than that. And it, particularly in things like the conquistadors in Spain continue to use crossbows for a long time and they use both weapons together. Uh, and theory, I think what you get is crossbows are more reliable. Crossbows don't misfire. You know, yeah. these early guns, they have a misfiring problem. And they also can be slower. I mean, you're talking about slow in the reload for a crossbow. For a gun, it's going to be slower, particularly as the barrels begin to foul up if you're shooting them a lot. The upside of a gun is that it is way more lethal. Like, guns are just substantially more dangerous than any other weapon you have for this period. So what you're getting is an, a much higher level of lethality for probably slightly lower accuracy and greater cost. So you see them coexist for quite a while uh, before eventually the crossbow fades out. But then it still kind of persists in some areas, like naval warfare, everything's a lot wetter. So yeah. crossbows and bows continue to be quite useful into the 1570s. You know, you, you have arquebuses, but you kind of want that fallback of like, I want something that if we all get wet, still works. So yes. you do see a bit of redundancy as well. There's a famous story from the 1565 Siege of Malta, where it starts raining, the rains come early. And so at the end of the summer, they get these deluges of rain. And the uh, hospitalers basically go, we have this armory full of crossbows we haven't been using because we used to be like a really crossbow heavy even like 30 years ago, it was standard training to learn how to use a crossbow to fight on the galleys. Uh, so they all they crack the armory open and they pull out all their crossbows and they're like, okay, crossbows to the front, you know, let's bring out the old, the tied and true reliable weapon. Yeah. We did sort of promise Alina a little bit of uh, unrelenting death and genocide. So just briefly, guns also give you the psychological, when you go to, when the Spanish go to the new world, you have that psychological thing of fire sticks. So the, so the Aztecs who, who've never seen this are suddenly, well, geez, they're, fire, they're actually firing lightning at us and you, you don't get that so much in Europe, <laughs> not after the first few times. No, but they are still pretty, they're pretty horrible to be on the other end of. And you hear a lot of like, like in the Battle of Lepanto, which is this big naval battle of 1571, when you get, when your ships get close and you get, if you get that full blast of gun to the face, it's just like devastating to the front line. So you're just like, so the front line are all going to get killed, but line yeah. two will be fine. <laughs> Because <laughs> they don't reload quickly, so you know, line line two are just surrounded by dead and mangled and wounded in front of them. <laughs> uh, um, we we mentioned line two it. Is so charming, by the way. Can I just add that? <laughs> it's medieval weapons. That's what they're for. We so we talked about mentioned it a little while ago. What happened at the Battle of Cresci? If I remember correctly, and this is years ago, the there were Flemish crossbowmen on the French side. Italian. Close. Uh, yeah. I mean, there are there actually are quite fam famous and successful Flemish crossbowmen. Uh, the crossbow yields of Flanders are quite influential, but Flanders and, and France have a troubled relationship. <laughs> so, yeah, just at little... this point, I think they're allied with the English uh, in 1346. But yeah, so there's the Battle of Crecy is kind of one of the main turning points in the Hundred Years' War. It really it's the first big English victory, and up until this point, England has spent an insane amount of money to achieve absolutely nothing. So it really the reason the Hundred Years' War is a hundred years long, a little bit can be placed on crazy, because if it goes the other way, the war probably fizzles out. Mm. But there's a famous bit at the start of it where 
that gets talked about a lot when we talk about crossbows because it's the crossbowmen and the and the English longbowmen duel. This is the first great victory of English longbows, at least on like a, a grand scale. There's some smaller battles in kind of internal strife and particularly in the Scottish border, but this is like the big deal. This is a really big medieval battle. Uh, they don't actually stay this big for very long because the next year the Black Death arrives, talking about fun mass death, uh, <laughs> and like you know we have a third fewer people. So when you skip ahead to like Poitiers, which is 10 years later, the battle is much smaller because uh, it's just fewer people. <laughs> but at Crecy, the Genoese are sent forward to shoot first at the, at the English. This is a fairly standard French tactic and tactic used elsewhere, uh, where if you have to, if you're going to have to be the offensive party, what you really don't want to be doing is charging into like a tight ranked formation where everyone's ready for you. Because when you get there, you're tired and they're not. And that's bad. So crossbows and other missile troops are really useful for softening up the target basically before you hit them so even if they're not necessarily directly killing because when we get into the era of plate armor which we are here they're less and less effective at actually seriously harming or killing people but they are extremely effective psychologically being shot at even if you're in full plate and it doesn't penetrate you if you're being hit by arrows and crossbows it's miserable like it's it's you know imagine it being out in the worst hailstorm of your life where you know one in every 50 times maybe the hail will penetrate your leg and you won't be able to walk anymore it's really it's it's bad times so and it also shuts down communication you can't talk to people because you have to have your visors down and the medieval visors are very stifling so it, it's it's a great tool for that and that's what the english use their longbows for so effectively for so long is to have this effect on mostly the french but on other opponents as well uh, the problem is that the Genoese march forward, they shoot, the archers step forward and respond, and the Genoese are decimated. And then the French charge through the Genoese, by most accounts. I mean, one of the things that's both fascinating and ho absolutely horrible about Crecy as a battle is it was a huge deal at the time. It was very widely known to be a huge deal, so lots of people wrote about it, and none of them agree on what happened. <laughs> so you have all these sources, some of which are written, like one of these is this guy, this Italian writer, Villani, he dies in 1347. He dies the next year. So you know he wrote this down like right after it happened because he's dead after that. So it's like it's like cutting edge. This is like front page breaking news journalism for a medieval, a medieval chronicle equivalent of it. But he disagrees with loads of people, all people who are writing all the other times. Just, so this, pinning down exactly what happens is really difficult. But they generally accept the kind of default story is the Genoese are forward, they shoot, they're shot back at, they're, they kind of either are massacred or they just like decide this isn't worth it and then the french kind of charge through them some versions have the french massacring the genoese as they go other versions they just kind of charge through them and it's just a chaotic mess without them actually attacking the genoese themselves uh and then the french knights are kind of destroyed uh, by the english and it's a really bloody battle because basically no very few prisoners are taken uh the king of bohemia dies at it uh he was apparently blind and had himself strapped to his horse and was charged forward uh, in this kind of chivalric moment that people always talked about uh, and was not very well thought out. And so it's it's this big mess of battle, but at the start of it, you have this crossbow duel, and it's one of the only times you have this very direct story about longbows on one side, crossbows on the other. People try to infer a lot from it, and it is interesting to look at it, but the other side of it is that Crecy is just like the worst, one of the worst days of French command. It's a complete disaster. Nothing goes right. Most versions of the battle, they because one of the things some forces disagree on is when the battle happened during the day. Was it in the morning? Was it in the afternoon? Generally, it's thought that the French marched there. The English set up the day before, and the mar French marched there that morning and then fought there rather than waiting a day, which is kind of what they recommended they should do, is you know, rest, fight the battle the next day. 
there's things there's thoughts that maybe the Genoese uh Genoese would often go to battle wearing quite heavy armor and bringing this thing called a pavis. A pavis is this really big shield that you would just stick on the ground in front of you. And when you're reloading your crossbow, you crouch behind it so that yeah. the other guy shooting at you hits your shield instead of hitting you. So it's kind of like bringing your own barricade to a battle. And there's some versions you would have a guy whose job it was would be carry the shield in front of you. Other versions, they just stick the shield in the ground. Uh, and and there are different tactics that they would use with it. And so they're apparently all on the baggage train. So the Genoese went forward with none of their proper protection, having marched all day. And it may have been kind of muddy and miserable. And basically, it was the worst surf performance they could put forward. But it's still a very interesting battle for that, for looking at the use of archery and combat and this kind of... And one of the things, the Genoese crossbowmen were a very popular mercenary force, and they remained a very popular mercenary force. Uh, Edward III, who wins the Battle of Crecy, then goes on to take the city of Calais, which is held by the English until the reign of Bloody Mary. Uh, so it's the longest holding they have in France, because when they lose everything else, the energy is where they keep Calais for, for, for longer. And within, like later in his reign, I think in the early 1370s, he hires Genoese crossbowmen to defend Calais, because they'll work for anybody. They, you know, they're mercenaries. And he clearly sees value in them. Like He's not like, oh, those Genoese that were terrible that one time. He's like, no, the Genoese crossbowmen are, are some of the best of the best. And sure, they had a bad day there, but like, I'm still willing to pay top dollar for them to defend my my holdings that I took. And even if they were the worst, they were all killed. So <laughs> these well, guys are dead. I, I mean, I did hear, I don't want to say conspiracy theory, but uh, someone suggested when I was at uni when we were talking about this, that maybe the French happily rode them down because as mercenaries, if they're dead, you don't have to pay them. But there, that is definitely an element of it. That's, there's always that upside. Be like, hey, three people pay. They become yeah. the thing later in the Middle Ages. They're like, you have to pay X amount up front because they stop being like, they stop taking payment at the end. They're like, oh no, wait, <laughs> this doesn't work out for us. You have to pay us at least a certain amount before we go. Yeah, I did this in the War of Independence. So put, oh, this looks dangerous. We'll send the Hessians in first because we're paying for them and we'll keep the British troops back and we'll use them when we know we're going to win. <laughs> but um, so why, why does the, uh, the crossbow eventually get phased out? The main, the main kind of death knell of crossbow is, is the advent of gunpowder and the adoption of the arquebus as the main weapon. And the, I mean, the arquebus is more deadly. And the, as the arquebuses get better, as you get, you know, better reloading techniques, as you get sort of from matchlock, we have wheel lock is added, which is the first device that doesn't need any kind of open flame to trigger. So wheel lock is basically it's a disc that you would spin into place and then you would lock again. It's, you would lock a piece of uh, pyrite against it usually. And it would spin and create a spark, and that would ignite instead. And then eventually from that, you'll get uh, the flintlock, which I think is what a lot of people would, the trigger mechanisms people would mostly recognize from these kind of old-style guns. But you get more and more advanced triggers, which kind of reduce some of that damp issues. You get advances in the quality of gunpowder. In the kind of 16th century, they figure out how to make better and better, refine gunpowder better so that it doesn't have issues with dampness seeping into the powder itself and making it not work, which is always a problem. And just refining the saltpeter because the saltpeter is actually several different types of chemical compounds. And so there's, there's ones that you want that are better than others. So they learn how to refine that better. So gunpowder becomes cheaper. It becomes better and more reliable over the course of the 16th century, but the crossbow isn't really phased out evenly across Europe. So you see it like in France seems to largely stop using it in the 1530s. Uh, haven't kind of in the Italian wars, France is invading Northern Italy. A series of quite disastrous and horrifying wars they they fight with Italy and Spain and the Holy Roman Empire and it's it's a horrible mess. Uh, Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, seems to phase them out at around the same time from military use, 
I say this is all for military use, that these it's kind of going away. Sweden is still using them at least into the 1550s, and kind of then begins to phase them out when they're in a war with Russia, and then kind of has to every so often like switches back to crossbows if they have like they run out of gunpowder shortage, they have gunpowder shortage or something. So they're still using crossbows a bit later. And then as well in things like colonial holdings, like Spain is still using crossbows to some degree in uh Central America and South America, certainly into the late 16th century. And I recently found that there's evidence that there are crossbows in Jamestown in North America mm-hmm. in the early 1600s. So it's certainly like kind of lingering in certain areas, but it stops being a main weapon of war in kind of the mid 16th century. And for a point of reference, England officially retires the longbow in the 1590s. So they are actually quite late to get rid of that weapon, but that, it's kind of in part of the same movement. And one of the things we have for England that's really entertaining is that there's like a pamphlet war over the retirement of the longbow and people arguing in pamphlets that the longbow was great. And back in our day, there's a lot of back in my day or back yeah. in my dad's day, you know, longbow men were men and they shot longbows and, <laughs> and other people being like, but guns are just better. And so it is contentious. And I say in the siege of Malta in 1565, the hospitalers use crossbows at a key point and they probably used them more earlier to some degree. Uh, there's some evidence for, at least minor crossbow use, the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. So it hangs around, but it is it is being phased out. And you certainly don't see the same widespread use. And as sim- you can see similar trends in the manufacture of crossbows. It becomes a decreasing demand as guns really take over and the tactics shift accordingly. We see the arrival of pike and shot, which is and the kind of a very brutal form of warfare because guns are just way more lethal than anything that's kind of come before and particularly at that range. So you see, it, it, it's a very different style of fighting. Yeah, I thought there was a, a school of thought that suggested that if the Royalist army in the 1640s had had longbows and crossbows, they would have defeated Parliament a lot quicker than reliant on guns, but it's all a bit hypothetical. But uh, we've come to the end of like the crossbows lifespan. What is its legacy? It's, it's an interesting question. And one of the things that I, I think depends a lot on where you're from, because I think coming at this from an English language avenue i mean i think the the longbow has this long and pronounced legacy particularly linked with certain branches of english nationalism this idea of the archer as an, an english national identity has been very popular for years you see him equated to like the tommy in the trenches in world war one and this idea of him being an, a normal kind of everyday soldier fighting against the elites that this myth that is built up about the archer when in fact like archers weren't actually that weren't necessarily peasants they would have been free people for the most part and sometimes they would be sibling younger siblings of nobles so you would go to war with like you know i'm the son of a senior noble i go to war as a man at arms and my kid brother is an archer Uh, so that kind of thing so there's there's a lot of different class dynamics in archery um but we have this kind in english we we kind of i think see identify more with the longbow and see the crossbow is another weapon, but you see it in places like Switzerland, particularly has a very strong association with the crossbow, with the, the myth of William Tell and this idea of like the, the founding myth of Switzerland is tied up in the story of the crossbow. So I think it has it has a really interesting kind of national legacy in that way of kind of a certain amount of you know, English longbows are sort of a bit defined against crossbows. And then in Europe, you have some places that identify very strongly with crossbows. You also have this more kind of non-military aspect of the crossbow. So the crossbow was a very popular sporting weapon. I think I mentioned briefly the Flemish crossbow guilds where this guild, I think we think may have mean of like craftsmen working together. These were more like social clubs. This is like the, the local shooting club 
where well-to-do burgers of the cities would get together and they would shoot crossbows. And they took the shooting very seriously. There were these huge tournaments between cities that would be held every year or every few years. And depending on how much you could afford, really, because they're expensive to put on, there would be free beer. Uh, if you accidentally mm -hmm. shot someone and you were a member of the guild, you were you could not be punished for it. Uh, as long as you were in the in the exercising of your practice duties, you couldn't just like go around shooting people. But if you were if you accidentally shot someone in target practice, it was not a crime. Mm -hmm. uh, and they actually were a recruiting source for troops. One of the things about crossbowmen is they tended to be a slightly higher status than your average uh, soldier. And they were paid more than longbowmen or more, more normal archers for that reason. Uh, so to kind of reflect certain higher status and higher quality of expensive equipment, I guess would be more accurate than quality. So, but like they, that remained popular after the end of the crossbow military use. I mean, the shooting guild survived through early modern Europe. Uh, there are crossbowmen still supplying them. The court at Dresden in Germany remained like they had huge shoot. They had this thing called Poppenjay shoot, where you erected this big pillar in the middle of the town or in the middle of a field near the town. And it has a bird on the top called Poppenjay, and the goal is to shoot the bird off the pole. Uh, so you can see where the accidents come in immediately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but it was like they had the the Duke and then King would throw these huge Poppenjay shoots up until the 18th century. Like it was a, a huge festival. And that remained a very popular element. And then they remained very popular for hunting. There's still a popular hunting weapon in some parts of you know North America and uh, Europe. It remains a popular hunting weapon. In addition to other parts of the world, like it's a very popular hunting weapon in parts in uh, West Africa it has been for centuries. And because it's silent, you know, it's mm. it's much quieter than a gun. Uh, and so it has this longer term legacy. The crossbow has never really gone away. It stopped being used as a weapon of war, but it's it's re been retained in popular imagination in some places and as a as a useful tool for hunting or for sport uh, entertainment throughout. Stuart, that was really interesting. I've now uh, been inspired to maybe take up archery, but uh, do remind our listeners the name of your book. Yes, my book is uh, The Medieval Crossbow, Weapon Fit to Kill a King. Uh, it was published with Pen and Sword Books. came out last year. You can also get it on most e-reader platforms. Fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result... We have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.